Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by our producer, Chris Rowe, and we talk about some of our favourite moments from season two. As well as running Chris Rowe Management for almost 25 years, Chris has a production company, Tea Time Productions. Through this, he co-wrote and directed the multi-award-winning short film, A Tale of Two Sisters, which stars Tracy Lords. The company works with first-class talent on feature and short films, TV and digital series, stage and events, and has multiple projects in development or production. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Happy to be with you. Again, it seems like this was just like two months ago. I know. Yeah, well, it was just before Christmas because we broadcast the last of these on December 31st. So, yeah, it's been about three months, three and a half months since we last got together to talk about this. And of course, our first guest of the season was just so lovely. And that's Lynn Shea. Extraordinary tales. Um, And I'm going to dive in and say one of the things that I found great about interviewing Lynn was her honesty, the emotion, the, I love the line that acting is a safe space to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was particularly powerful. And, and, um, you know, one of my favorite things with, with these interviews is that because, and this is, partly in kudos to you because you're so good to work with. You're a very good interviewer. I mean, that's what I, I hear from all of them is that they suddenly feel comfortable to go there. Yeah. They suddenly feel comfortable to start talking about their past and start talking about their childhood. And in some cases uh, maybe wasn't good, but they, they go there and they open up and they talk to you. And I, I felt that Lynn's, um, interview was really she really opened up and she she didn't just tell a story she really told the story and I wanted two hours and we didn't have two hours um but I agree you know be honest um I thought was a really powerful moment yeah I think one of my favorite stories was about getting the part in Kingpin you know preparing to be the ugliest, angriest woman in the world. Absolutely. You know, the thing with Lynn is because she's so well-trained, I mean, I I love that story, but I also happen to love when she was talking about her her auditioning for um, Jack Nicholson. You know, when she comes in with the with the turkey bone and the whole thing and everyone at the studio is like, oh my God, what is she doing? And they all took a step back. She is one of those actors. She gets into that character. She becomes that character. Um, And I find that a lot of actors who really go there or dare to go there, they've also been really good stage actors too. Um, They're used to having just props and costume to do it rather than the surrounding of a set or on location somewhere. Uh, And stage actors are great about that. And I felt like she, when you when you heard her stories and that one specifically, I thought was great. I absolutely loved her story where it said, or she said, Lynn Shay, whore, <laughs> you know, and her mother was so, was so repulsed by what she saw. She got up from the premiere, walked out and went to the restroom and vomited. But like Lynn is such a great storyteller and they're good stories. I hope she writes a memoir because you want to hear more of these. You don't want them to end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, just being honest about her brother and how much he'd supported her and, and so on. But also I think just working with, it's such a long career as well as with many of our guests, the fact, you know, it's very different than, but the way she's adapted and she's working with new people like on insidious um, movies. Yeah. Yeah, great fun. And she's, 
you know, the thing about Lynn, she said, I don't know whether anyone's going to remember me when we come out of uh, um, quarantine, of course, which is hilarious because that's just not the case. I'm sure she has an incredibly full plate of, of, of work lined up. She's going to work right to the end. Um, uh, she's too she's too rooted in the genre to disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, way too many people want to work with her and enjoy working with her. And she's very lucky because more so than ever right now in the genre, they're writing roles for women her age. So she's kind of had this fascinating ride as they just keep writing roles and keep writing roles and keep writing roles. If you go back and think about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and whatever happened to baby Jane, they were considered old and washed up and they were only in their early fifties. Yeah. And that was in, you know, the, uh, or late fifties. Uh, that is just not the case now. Yeah. Actors are working well into their nineties and, and Lynn will be too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which, um, and our next guest, Tom Holland, again, I found fascinating because of the change of career, apart from that, because he was a, he was an actor. Um, I hadn't really realized this. He was acting under the name Tom Fielding. Um, but again, I just found, you know, the whole backstory really interesting and, you know, working with Ingmar Bergman, Ingrid Bergman even, um, really interesting guy. Well, same thing. What I found in very passionate about Tom was just talking about his childhood growing up and, you know, right kind of in the middle of the war and wartime in 1943. Mm -hmm. And um, just what inspired him and, and, and what led him to go on the journey as an actor. And what I found particularly fascinating, which a lot of our viewers and listeners probably are not aware of if you're of a certain age, was the studio system. Because he came in at a time when the studio system went from being the king to suddenly it crumbled because television made such an impact on the studio system. So he had been uh, uh, under contract uh, and then suddenly lost his, his contract. He was no longer uh, on contract. And so, you know, he did that, suffered for a while, then went to law school. But all the time, he still had this kind of long-term goal where he was going to write and he wanted to direct. Um, and then he got his big break, uh, the, the Beast Within, I believe it was. Yes. And then the studio went bankrupt and no one knew. So he had their top film of the year. They were going bankrupt, but all the, all the trade papers talked about it was that they were going bankrupt because this other film had bankrupt them. So then again, right back to suffering, going through hell, only to then get that break to write Psycho 2. And then that, that launched everything for him. I mean, that put him really back on the map. Yeah. But what I found absolutely fascinating about that story was the fact that he took it because he was desperate and nobody else wanted it. It was that thing of, we're going to get killed. No one's going to, who wants to follow Alfred Hitchcock with one of the greatest horror thrillers of all time? You know, it was iconic. And it was listening to him describe that thought process and how he was approaching it and being able, because he had been an actor, being able to write what he described as actor bait part, something with a with an arc that would interest um, Tony Perkins. Well, look, let's face it, that had to be incredibly intimidating. I mean, you're looking at Hollywood cinema royalty, genre royalty. Hitchcock had just passed. So I don't even know if that, if, if Hitchcock had been alive, that probably wouldn't have happened. Because mm -hmm. I can't imagine that he would have ever have wanted that to happen. Um, but it ended up being a very good film. 
And I mean, he even had a little cameo in it. I think he played a, a sheriff deputy in it. Yeah. But uh, look, it, it relaunched the franchise. They ended up doing, you know, two or three other films, not as good. Uh, but it certainly put him on the map as a, as a writer because suddenly everyone said, who is this? <laughs> who is this that he was able to resurrect a franchise that everyone pretty much thought had been not necessarily dead, but everyone was satisfied with how it ended. Sequels were not really a thing at that moment. Mm. Um, the only movie I can think of that there was Star Trek, they were getting ready to do Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, right at that time in, in or 1982. And then Star Wars, of course, had been incredibly successful and, and they, were, they were doing another Star Wars film. Otherwise, I can't really think of other franchises besides Bond, where they were doing uh, uh, an ongoing sequel. I can't really think of any other uh, franchises uh, that, that, that did that. And then, no, um, no, no they, they, again, just fascinating. And also the stories about casting Alex Vincent in Child's Play, I thought it was... Uh, really in really interesting insight into you know getting a child actor in that role um was was fascinating but also talking about directors our next guest darren lynn bowsman um <laughs> and i have to say one of my favorite stories is about pitching hellraiser with clive barker <laughs> yeah it, it i i laughed at that um, actually, I laughed at the entire interview because I know Darren very well and he's a great storyteller, but people don't realize the muck you go through, how close you get to just getting ready to start a project. And then the simplest thing can stop all the momentum and totally hang you up. And I thought the, the, the Hellraiser story was incredible. And and totally for those of us who have dealt with the Weinsteins, no surprise. Uh, and um, that was Bob's mentality. Uh, uh, and, you know, to him, that's what sold uh, genre films. And, um, you know, he looked at Clive, Clive looked at him, and he knew that wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> but I, but, I, but I, I, I thought for, for Darren, I thought one thing that, I think is so true and he was so honest about it was when he was pitching himself to do this music video and he he just basically lied you know he gave a bunch of bullshit said i've got this camera i've got all of this i can go out deliver this to you in a week's time and he did and that's what that's what i think the people who really are successful Sometimes that's what you have to do. Um, in a way, you do exactly what Hollywood does every day, which is you kind of stretch the truth, you make believe, you do all of these things. Um, but the real creative people, they get it done. And, and Darren gets it done. I think it was also very honest of him to talk about the movie that he did, 11, 11, 11, which was not his favorite film, not happy with how it turned out, the most critical of his entire career. And yet it's the film that made him the most money. He was the writer of it. He was the director of it. And through the guilds and residuals, he still makes really good money off of a film that he really didn't care for. And, you know, it's really honest to talk about that. You know, he talked about Saw 2, where he said, like, I made maybe $53,000 off it after paying taxes, paying uh, attorney and, and rep fees and all of that. He goes, I really didn't have much money. And people mm -hmm. don't realize that uh, everyone's interpretation of Hollywood is that, you know, they live in these gigantic gated homes up in the hills. And that's just not always the case. You do a job, you make money off of it and you go to the next job, and then you go to the next job, and you just hope that you continue to build momentum, and with the momentum comes more pay. It's not always the case, especially now, because Hollywood is very different now uh, than it used to be in terms of even pay. So uh, I felt that he was incredibly honest with how he talked. 
about um, his career and the evolution of it and, and, and his pay and all of that. It's, 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 it's quite a good uh, uh, story. Uh, yeah, and I, I think what I was really impressed me about Darren was his passion and his vision. Repo, the genetic opera, you know, he said he always wanted to do films with music. You know, not just the video that we were talking about earlier on. Love the story about Paul Savino. Savino. Loved it. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can see why you would have gone through that. That would be, yeah. You know, you're not getting on with your star. You're really not getting on with your star. You know, you almost hate and how they got through that. But also the other thing I found fascinating was tension, his immersive theatre project. Yeah. As well, you know, talking, describing about something so huge and again with just such passion. Absolutely. Um, that's been something I know he's been passionate about for a while. Darren's a great visionary when it comes to these sorts of things. And um, I just to go back to the, 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 the hard times that he faced. I mean, I love listening to him talk about, you know, being really, really, really in not a good place, not a lot of money, eating ramen noodles, you know, which is like the poor actor's go-to food, you know. Uh, and, and then, you know, getting some sex, success and then, and then working with Paul. I've been on sets before where you could, you could cut the tension with a knife because you could tell that the actor didn't like the director or the producer, whatever it was. So to walk into it really not liking each other, but to come out the other end becoming these incredible friends. And then his drinking stories with Paul, you know, going from bar to bar to bar, um, knocking on the door of the little Italian restaurant closed and they open it up and, and feed them. It's, it's great stories. Again, I hope that Darren at one point down the road decides to write a book because, you know, these are stories that you love to hear. They're entertaining. Yeah. 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 Our next guest, Dee Wallace, um, again, fascinating lady and what she went through on some of those parts. I'm thinking, you know, particularly, Hills Have Eyes, Cujo. The sheer physical demands that are made on an actor to be able to create these extraordinary performances. I thought that it was very telling and, and hopefully very inspiring for actors to really give an insight as to the business and what it's really all about. Yeah, well, Dee is inspiring. I mean, that's why she's a motivational speaker mm. as well. Um, you love to listen to her. Um, you're drawn in to listen to her. Um, I, you know, I love that she is honest with herself and goes there about her childhood and how complicated it was. And they grew up poor and her father was an alcoholic. And then, you know, she starts getting this success. And then even though she's getting some success, it still doesn't come without problems like being out in the middle of the Mojave Desert filming and driving two hours uh, uh, at the end of a shoot at 2 a.m. to get back and her husband saying, no, you're not going to do that. So she's going to take it out of her own pocket to, to get a hotel. I mean, these are the struggles that actors go through. Um, again, everyone thinks it's this kind of fairy tale experience and it's not. Um, and then talking about like that beautiful scene in, in E.T. when she's at the, at the, the table um, and she, she gets up, goes to the, the sink or refrigerator and, and Steven Spielberg said, well, why did you do that? And she explained it to him and he was so like, oh my God, I need a sink, I need running water, I need this all built in 30 minutes. Um, and she credits Stephen and, and some of the other directors uh, like Joe Dante um, for going there, like these spontaneous things, like when the generator broke down, when they were filming uh, The Howling and how they used headlights from the cars in order to light that final scene, but it was such a special scene. And so, and Dee's you know, filled full of those, those types of stories. Um, and the, you know, the Cujo, was I think one of the greatest performances of her career. If that movie had been made now, she would have gotten an Oscar nomination for it at least. Because first of all, horror films are given much more credit now than they used to be. Secondly, it's a Stephen King 
projects. So those are always given uh, a, a great uh, spotlight. But her performance is just fantastic. Kathy Bates, same thing, misery, you know. Um, anyway, she's she's great. And, and I, I love listening to her stories, everything from Dudley Moore all the way up to, you know, the, you know, the most recent working with Rob Zombie. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, again, one of the things that was a real highlight for me was the talking about 10, a film which I hadn't seen until I needed to do my research for the show. It really is that old actor's adage that there are no small parts. What she does in two or three scenes within that movie, yet you know the entire history of that woman. You know exactly who she is, why she's there, what her whole, you know, you, you get a life story with not knowing anything about her. Um, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary woman. Well, it, it, you're right. I mean, it starts with the writing, okay? Because obviously hmm. someone wrote it and had had the insight to go, okay, I think I want to make this person, It's even though it's a small supporting scene, I want this person to be this. Hmm. And then, you know, the director adds his or her magic to it and the, and the actor does what does their thing um you know the person that really taught me that i think was malcolm mcdowell he said no one wants to see the same actor every scene of a movie he goes you can make your impression in two or three scenes and leave a strong impression and i thought okay and he's right and these the, performance in 10 i think completely does that mm. Mm. And speaking of another great actor who I particularly admire, as I know you do, and that's Bruce Davison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, wonderful stories. I don't know what your favourite mind, I'm going to dive in the mind, the Elsa Lanchester story. Um, her advice from Elsa Lanchester, which for those who haven't seen, it was basically you know, when an actor, when a director asks you to do something, just say, yeah, so that sounds very interesting, and I'll try and incorporate it in my performance and do what the fuck you like. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, Bruce, first of all, Bruce Davison is, I think, one of the most underrated actors in this business. Uh, he is fantastic. No matter what he does, he's fantastic. He's not always the first person they think of. Uh, you know, I've been his manager now for, for eight years. And, you know, when you go to pitching for something, sometimes they'll say, no, I just don't see it. I don't see it. Problem with casting of today, they don't have an imagination. Casting directors of a certain age, they know he can go there because they casting. They were casting back in the 80s or the early 90s, maybe up through 2000. Um, but so often he gets, you know, the role of, you know, the grandpa, the, always the nice guy, but he plays bad very, very well. You know, look at Short Eyes and, and, and just, you know, there's a handful of other films uh, where he's just horrible if given the opportunity to go there. Um, one thing that I thought was particularly fun with Bruce was when he would talk about putting on the little performances uh, when he was younger. And all these great actors did the same thing. I mean, you know, Lynn talking about, you know, putting on her little performances with her stuffed animals and all of her costume changes. And her mother was totally open to that and loved it and embraced it. And didn't mind the mess as long as she cleaned it up and, and, and Bruce doing that. And, and I think that is so when it starts is when you're a little kid and you have all this time to yourself and you, you put on these performances. I recently watched a documentary on Queen Elizabeth and her sister, Princess Margaret. And during the war, they were basically quarantined in Windsor Castle and they, did, they never left. They, they basically stayed in there for a couple of years. And so they would entertain the people in the castle. They would put on plays and they would wear costumes and they would do all of these things because these are two little girls quarantined stuck in this castle. Their parents were sometimes not there. I thought it was incredible. And it reminded me of the actors who do the same thing and mm -hmm. make believe and pretend and all of that stuff, which is fabulous. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned Short Eyes and Bruce's performance in Short Eyes. Again, a film I'd not seen before. And I wouldn't say he's necessarily bad. He's 
he's somebody with some massive issues and he's struggling and he's not sure what he's done. I think I found the, the actual filming process of that film as well. He was talking about how he's working with real prisoners and, you know, it it feels like a filmed play because you get these long, long speeches and so on. And it's so self-contained. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating story, the whole background of that. It was. And, you know, when Bruce, uh, he's brilliant at theater. I mean, he's so good at theater. He's very good. Um, I put him in a couple of productions here in Los Angeles, and I would have loved to have seen when he did The Elephant Man on Broadway. I would have loved to have seen The Normal Heart. I would have loved to have seen Agnes of God and some of these incredible plays that he did. Um, uh, but, you know, he's such an incredibly brave actor because at a time when no one wanted to do a film about the AIDS epidemic, Bruce saw the importance of it. This is the very late 80s. No one was really touching it. Mm, mm. Uh, and Bruce went from, you know, he was making incredibly good money per week to saying, yeah, I'm going to do this movie, a uh, longtime companion for 500 bucks a week, uh, because he understood the importance of it. He underst understood the social importance of it. And so it really, when you think about it, is one of the first films that really deals with the, the AIDS epidemic. And um, he won uh, a Golden Globe for it. He got an Oscar nomination for it. And then a couple of years later, two years later, uh, Tom Hanks does Philadelphia and wins an Oscar for that. And um, it's incredible. You know, it, it's, it's incredible. And in fact, I believe Tom Hanks wrote him a little note and said, uh, you know, you paved the way for this. And uh, what a wonderful thing to have. Yeah, he's a he's a very brave uh, uh, actor and, and very sensitive too. At the same time, he's he's mm. wonderful, and I I love him. I, I love our our friendship and our 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 business relationship very much. Yeah, yeah. And our next guest was a, a departure. I think I'm right in thinking this is the first time we've actually had a musician uh, as a guest. Uh, G. Tom Mac Gerard. Um, again fascinating stories uh, again very honest about the childhood i love the fact that he I, I love but i'm slightly horrified by the fact that at the age of 14 he was going out and he was gigging and coming back at all times in the morning and i'm thinking that it would not allow that these days um <laughs> it was a different time nick mm. <laughs> it, was, it was a different time um uh, g tom is He's, he is incredibly talented and, um, you know, he's gone through all these different evolutions, which a career does and transformations. And, um, you know, he's done songs for uh, Earth, Wind and Fire and Carly Simon and Kiss. And uh, uh, it's incredible. I mean, you know, he's he's my first Grammy winning client that I've ever had. Uh, he won a Grammy with Eminem. Um, the funny thing about a great song is that you hear it everywhere you go. And his song, uh, Cry Little Sister, you hear it all the time. And I get the biggest kick out of, out of that because I'll be in a grocery store, or I'll be in a clothing store or whatever, and you hear it. And then you hear people humming to it and you hear um, people singing the words to it. And of course they have no clue who I am. They have no clue that I, I know him, represent him, et cetera. Um, but he's great. And uh, yeah, again, great stories. Um, and just a great artist, you know, a great artist, again, sensitive. And as, as they are, yeah. guys are really sensitive. And, <laughs> and um, uh, someone that, again, I think, People don't always know the name. Mm. Sometimes you hear the songs that he's done or the movies that he's done work for, you go, oh my God, I love that. Yeah. I mean, Shaquille O'Neal comes out and goes, this is my favorite song, you know, Cry Little Sister or, you know, someone else will. So he's, he's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Now I remember, 
I love the story, particularly about asking him about titles of some of the early songs that he wrote. My favorite was, I saw a doctor and then I cried, a song about a doctor doing illegal abortions. Um, <laughs> it's like, what are you, it's like, and we're always, you know, the generosity of telling that kind of story and the honesty of that, but also just giving us an entire tour of his home when the battery was running out on the phone that he was using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just, it really is good of, the, of these wonderful people to give up their time as far as I'm concerned to, to, to sit and chat with me. And I know, and the reason that was all going on was because his laptop died just before the meeting. Um, so, you know, we had those technical issues. But yeah, I got real interesting insights into how he wrote songs and the difference of writing on piano and guitar and very inspiring i just i love what he's doing with the lost boys the musical mm. and how he's kind of expanding he's working on a couple of other musicals right now because that's become a very popular thing to do you take a successful film franchise and let's see how do we expand it oh we we turn it into a musical um you know uh, i don't know how you do night of the living dead the musical but Okay, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, get you, Barbara. It's a big hit. But um, you know, you know, people people are doing that, and um, it's great. The music for it is fantastic, and you know, he loves to perform, and he gives audiences a great a great ride. It's it's I don't know how he does it, jumping <laughs> around stage doing his thing. But um, you know, look at Mick Jagger; <laughs> he's still doing it too, yeah. running all over the stage. Um, I mean, could you imagine Mick Jagger fat? <laughs> it's just not possible. No. He's been strength being for so long. But yeah. uh, G. Tom, uh, same thing. Tiny, running all over the place, bouncing around. But I think there's lots more to see and hear from him down the road. This he's we got a lot of great things planned. Documentaries, mm -hmm. musicals. Yes. Albums. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Night of the Living Dead, and that kind of brings us on to our next guest, who was Suzanne Romero. Uh, uh, George's widow. Again, lovely, lovely to chat with her because I've not I've met her in the past very, very briefly, but it was just really nice to talk. And again, just some of the stories. Well, uh, you can't be with someone like George and not have stories. And it almost doesn't matter if you were a fan and had a moment with him or you live with him. Uh, I've certainly got my share of stories, but. You know, what Suze is doing is, I think, so important because she really fills two shoes. She fills the shoes of being executor of his estate and, and, and running that. And then there's the George Romero Foundation, better known as GARF, and she, and, and she runs that. It's a nonprofit organization. Um, and so it's two very different roles. And it's easy to get the two intertwined when you're, and you're not supposed to, you got to keep them separate. And she works really hard to do that. But, you know, she works really hard to keep the legacy of George and his filmmaking alive. And um, what she's doing, I think is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of courage, a lot of strength, you know, she didn't grow up in the business. She was not with George for years, decades. Um, so it would have been easy just to go, oh, I don't want to, I don't know what to do and turn it over to someone else to deal with. And she, she didn't, um, she's taken the, 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 both roles on. And, um, sometimes in there, I tell her, you have to remember, there's also Suzanne Romero that you have to think about. So there's, there's three things that you have to take care of the foundation, the preservation of George's estate and, and everything that's in with that. And then there's Suzanne Romero that you have to think about and remember exists. And, uh, um, but I think what she's doing with Garf is incredible. The amusement park, this kind of hidden gem, old hidden gem of George's that, that was recently found and restored is incredible. Um, and it's, you know, the first project that the foundation really worked on, got it restored, got the copyright on it, got, did everything. Um, and if you saw it, did you watch the amusement park? I did. I did. What, I mean, it's just as relevant right now today as it was when it was made 
back in the early 70s and how our, our elderly, you know, uh, community, how they're treated and how they still have a hard time functioning in society. Now in America, it's much better unless you get into small town America. That's a little more complicated, but it's still an issue here. It's still an issue in Europe. I mean, look at the restrooms upstairs and downstairs, and and then you know there's nothing on on that main level for for elderly people. And the sidewalks you walk down, and it's it's crazy, and um, it's pretty incredible movie when you watch it. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I it was a real eye opener, and I I think is the emotional impact of watching. It felt kind of like a horror movie because it was a George A. Romero movie and the way he filmed the crowds and the, the use of the space. But obviously the, the wonderful thing about all of George's work is the humanity. I love the story, you know, I love the again, you know, personal stories being shared. I love the fact that she did some of the research for um, on, air, on aircraft characters, carriers uh, for George's uh, book, The Living Dead. And um, the fact that she called George Lewis when he was being grumpy and difficult. <laughs> yeah, I called one day to speak and she was like, let me put Lewis on the phone with you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I know what the afternoon's been like. <laughs> and George was not a conversationalist. He didn't like the phone. And I've never really been intimidated by anyone, but was always intimidated talking to George on the phone always except a couple of times there were a few times he called me and a, like it always frightened me because I was like oh my god he's like oh my god what's going on and I remember he shared some news with me once uh, I think it was survival of the dead got its money I didn't know what to say I was it should have been a moment that we had this great you know hip hip hooray and instead, there was a lot of silence because I didn't know how to respond. <laughs> if you got together with George in person, different story. We'd go out for a restaurant or go to a bar. We'd sit in his house and we would laugh and he'd tell stories. You know, one of my greatest stories with George was he introduced me to the Cowboys, which was a great film uh, of John Wayne's and I had never watched it and we were talking about movie music and he he loved the score to that the theme score that John Williams did and George and I watched this movie at his place in Toronto and I look over at one point and there's tears coming down George's face and I looked over and I went oh my god this is a moment I'm I'm sitting here with George Romero and he's crying and we went out afterwards, talked about the movie. He was such a gentle giant. We walked about four or five blocks away at a fabulous meal. And uh, it was one of the greatest moments I ever had with George. It was just he and I. And yeah, so Suze has lots of stories like that. And um, uh, the foundation's doing some great stuff. Uh, there's some great projects being worked on right now through the estate. So it'll be fun to have Suze on again down the road to talk about some of the other things. Um, knock on wood, they happen, but it's, uh, yeah, she serves an important purpose and she was a good guest to hear from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Canadians, our next guest was Barbie Wilde. <laughs> What's the person, when you hear the name Barbie Wilde, what is the first thing that comes to mind the moment you hear the name? The hair. Always. The hair and the giggles. And the <laughs> And the fact, and she'll be able to tell great stories. She's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely great stories. And you know when she's really into it because she snorts. Yes. <laughs> she a little snort, and you know you're in for a great, uh, a great ride. I love Barbie. She's like family. Every time I'm in uh, uh, London, of course we're together, and uh, all of us, and then separately. But you know, she's she's not only made her her indent in in the horror world through um some of the films that she was in but uh what a great writer mm -hmm. she's and um you know she's got i think some really good projects there that uh, i'd love to see them turn into film yeah she's a really good writer 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think we we discussed something about how she actually got into writing. It was a new, you know, departure um, for her. But I I love again some of the just the, some of the stories like you know covering a man in whipped cream for Carl Reiner. Um, <laughs> the headline written down is just like <laughs> the film she was doing is just like again it kind of. It's that moment as an actor, which we've heard from, from like Darren, when he says, yeah, I can do this video. It's just that moment, the little light bulb goes off and you said, I've got this great idea. I can do this. This is what we, you know, uh, where, and then you think after, what have I just said? Um, but the, she follows through. She, you know, that is it. she absolutely delivered on what she had promised in the audition, you know, uh, in chatting with Carl Reiner. Yeah, no, she's great. Um, you know, I remember there was this great story that she told when she was working as a casting director and um, she overheard this parent uh, saying to the child, if you don't get in there and do what you're supposed to do, I'm not going to let you see grandma and grandpa. <laughs> I remembered saying that it was one of the most horrible experiences she's like what an awful parent to do that to that poor child and the the child got themselves together and they went in and did it and then came out and i talked to grandma <laughs> and i was like yes i mean you know the things that parents will put themselves through but it was interesting to hear her perspective as a casting director mm. And you know what they go through, and and uh, which actually I think would be kind of an interesting guest to have. I yeah. should I should bring a, a a casting director on that's done a lot of horror uh, uh, to the show. That would be yeah. fun because yeah. it would be interesting to see what what they look for, you know, in someone. What do they ask them to do? How how do you? Okay, if you're running through the forest and you've got to do this audition, you've got a small space to do it in. So how do you do that effectively and really impress casting and producers, your facial expressions and, and all of that sort of stuff. So maybe that'll be an interesting guest. Mm, too. Mm. Barbie, she inspired me for that idea. Yes, yes. And those, again, one of the things I always have to say, remind people is, you know, without you, but finding all these amazing guests for me to chat with and have these great experiences of, of, of talking to um, is something I'm incredibly grateful for uh, and is a real mark of just how well you do your role in this production. Well, there are reasons why I don't have hair. <laughs> there are many nights, as you know, I'm, I'm like, as we've come out of this pandemic, it's been much more challenging because now people are not as easily available mm. and so it's like oh we got this person confirmed oh shit they just booked uh, uh you know they're directing a, 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 an episodic uh they got to go into pre-production oh so and so just booked a film shit we're not going to have them for for six weeks so it is it is challenging and because of the eight hour time difference there are many nights i'm getting you stuff at, uh, as you're getting up, I'm <laughs> still working on getting scripts over to you, plus running a management business, plus doing everything else. So, yes, yeah, yeah, this is uh, challenging sometimes. Yeah, and, and you know, you're getting me stuff, and I'm having to turn it around just so I can get it back to you <laughs> because we're, we're close to the wire on a couple of these. Um, but again, talking about kind of behind the scenes stuff and other roles, our next guest, Barbara Crampton. I thought was fascinating because she's recently, here's a lady who had an extraordinary career and again, an extraordinary childhood um, on, in the carnival. Uh, I thought that was fascinating, her attitude to nudity on set and where this came from, et cetera. But the fact that she's taken on producer role now in some of her more recent projects, and I thought her insights into you know, her advice for screenwriters Simple, sympathetic, sorry, simple, em empathetic and scary. Um, and her insights into fear in the movies, but absolutely fascinating. Barbara is, is a, I think, an incredible story because Barbara, like so many actors, you can have this great, great career and then all of a sudden your momentum just slows down for no reason. 
And, and you know, I've had clients who uh, I've, I've put in really successful films, best picture of the year, you know, four or five films in a row, but it does nothing for their career. And you just sometimes don't understand. Barbara, throughout the seven, uh, the eighties had this incredible run, seventies or eighties uh, and and nineties. And, and then all of a sudden she hit this slow period. Um, and, and, you know, she, she kind of needed to reinvent herself and, um, you know, she did this little film called Your Next. And all of a sudden, she just, there was Barbara again. And she was great in it. Barbara's always great. Um, no matter what you, you give her, no matter what I hear about her from other people who know her, they're always like, she is 100% committed. I've had a handful of clients work with her just in recent years, a couple of the projects that, that she was um, producer on. And, you know, again, that evolution, she, she evolved and, and she's doing something else. And she's at an age where she can, I think, really do that. I mean, I think she's, a, she's at an age where she knows what works. She knows the tricks of the trade. She's learned from a lot of other people. She's worked with great producers. She's worked with horrible producers. And you know how to find that balance. Being a producer isn't easy. And as bad as producers sometimes can be and as cheap as they can be sometimes, um, they are the glue that keeps it all together. And people forget that. And you know, it's not the actor that keeps it all together unless the actor is serving as actor and producer as well. You know, the producers have to keep everything going. And uh, it's a great role for her. And I think she'll do really well. Um, I think the projects that she has served as a producer on, I think they've been good. Um, and I can't wait to see what she does in the future. Um, she's a lovely woman. She's a lovely guest. If you, if you get a chance to meet her, you'll love her. Um, she's great. And, and I know why the clients of mine who have worked with her, why they still speak so fondly of her all these years later, because she's, she's just great. Yeah. So she was a great guest and I loved her. Yes. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to seeing Jacob's wife, which I think is coming, Jacob's wife, which yeah. I believe is coming out for that's maybe sometime this month. Um, well, she was another one that was like, it was dodging, you know, it was like, I want to do it, but I can't. I'm in the middle of doing this. You know, she was doing all this PR for the movie. And, and, and anyways, it all worked out. We needed to get the premiere at South by Southwest over with, and then she had more time. So glad it happened. Again, our next guest was, again, fascinating to me, partly because of the um, Clive Barker connection, but also because of the George A. Romero connection. That's John Harrison as John actually obviously worked very closely in, in George. Um, and we were taught, and I remember my, one of my favorite stories from the season is not drowning Ted Danson in Creepshire and what was involved uh, in that. John Harrison is a lovely man. Um, and he's not always the name that comes to mind. Uh, the, you know, you, you don't go, oh yeah, I know who that is. But then when you look at the body of work, you go, oh yeah, I know who that is. Uh, and he, he's a great director. Um, he's a great writer. He's a great musician. And I loved, I loved his early stories, you know, back in the seventies, um, working on music. And, um, I love his soundtrack for both Creepshow and Day of the Dead. I think they're excellent. George loved movie music and loved John's work very much on, on, on both of those projects. He's a great director, um, and it's it's great to see him uh, at the helm, uh, you know, working on uh, the new Creep Show series. It was great having him on the day that season two premiered, mm. even though it wasn't his episode. Um, you know, he still had some inside uh, stories to tell us about what was coming up for season two and, and his involvement in season one. So John's a great guy, and uh, an interview totally worth listening to. Yeah. Um, learn a lot from from him because yes done a lot of yes i think that comes up a lot with <clears throat> the thing on the and again somebody who's adapted well to the changing business he's still doing new projects he's still another you know, things that he was talking about well john uh, was smart he got the hell out of los angeles 
uh, at a lovely home here, said so long California, moved to New Hampshire, got a beautiful place in New Hampshire. And now he just, you know, when he's directing an episode, he, he, look, he's established enough. It's not like he has to show up for a meeting. If he mm -hmm. has to fly to LA or uh, to New York for something, then he'll do it. But otherwise he's living the good life in the, in the, the, the live free or die state. Yeah. 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 And then, and again, fascinating stories about the creation of Dune, the TV series, like Gerard, you know, just passion about, sorry, about, um, sorry, Darren Lynn Bowsman about having a vision of what your art is and what you want to do. And, and, and so, um, extraordinary stories. Now I have to admit, kind of embarrassed. I was such a fanboy when I got to chat with Monty Markham. <laughs> Well, Monty is one of the true last American gentlemen, mm. I think. Um, I've been his manager for, uh, I think, 11 years now. And I, I love him. I love him very much. Uh, he's like family to me, uh, just like Bruce uh, Davison. I love his wife, Claire. And, um, I mean, this guy's career, again, you don't always know the name, but the moment you see the face, you go, of course. And then there's nothing he didn't do in the 70s. I mean, he was on everything in the 70s. Um, plowed through the 80s. Uh, and then kind of late 90s decided to go on a new journey. And he spent all that time producing and directing and doing some incredible documentaries. And then came back into it uh, in 2009, 2010. And that's when we, we met up. And it's been a beautiful friendship and relationship. I, I love him. And um, I remember when I, I, I was working on We Are Still Here. And I had booked another client in that film with Barbara Crampton. And um, I had I asked, like I always do, are you looking for any other roles? And is there anything else? Got a lot of good people. And the producer said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, I, I am. I'm, I'm looking for this, this guy, He's, you know, kind of this, uh, this stately, well-respected uh, older man, um, blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, I, I got just the person for it. So I, I threw Monty's name into the ring and they went, oh, that could be interesting. They knew exactly who he was. Um, and so I sent him the script and Monty called me and I'll never forget. He called me, goes up. Uh, Chris, Monty, how are you? How are you, my boy? And I went, I'm fine. He goes, um, I've read this script. I've never done one of these boogeyman scripts before. What do you think? Should I do it? <laughs> I said, well, what do you got to lose? Walk on the wild side. Let's try something different. He goes, well, it works for some. Let's give it a try. Yeah, I think I can do something with it. And he was fabulous in it. And he flew to Buffalo, I believe, to start shooting it. And after the first day of filming, I get a phone call from the from the director and producer. They wanting to speak to me. And I panicked. I was like, oh, shit, something's happened. What's going on? And they're like, uh, Chris, we want to talk to you about Monty. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, what's happened? And they're like, look, um, we thought we were going to get this really kind of elderly guy that was move slow and this, that, and the other. And they said, he's the complete opposite of that. And they said, we need to rework this character. And they said, but we don't have any more money. So we need to keep him here an extra couple of days in order to really do this effectively. And of course me, I'm about to go in and go, well, we're gonna have to pay. And then they say, uh, but Monty and I, we've talked about it. And he said, he's willing to stay. He wants the role to be good. And that's what he did. And he, he took something that was, good and made it really good and um, that was his first boogeyman movie and uh as he said and uh you know then he's gone on to do a few more <laughs> but uh he's just i love him so much he's 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 a true professional and i love him every day i love him yeah and again i think it's the voice and just as you say a pure gentleman and again 
fascinating stories. I was glad we were able to spend a little more time because he was, you know, so full of detail as to what and putting putting stuff into context. The fact, you know, working with the William Castle on Project X, and the fact again, what has come up with a number of other um, actors is the fact they're really interested in the process of filmmaking. Monty was very interested in the fact that in Project X, they animated a lot of it and got to meet uh, Joseph Barbera from Hanna-Barbera, who did the animation for it. And he has a real interest in the whole process, which then allowed him to do this later journey, as, which we discussed in the show of being a director. He is totally, you're right. He is totally fascinated with the process. The first time I ever sent him a self-tape audition request, he called me and he's like, what do I do with this? I said, well, they want you to put yourself on tape. And he went, um, okay, uh, they don't want me to come in. I said, well, the production office isn't here. It's, it's in Tennessee. He goes, uh, well, all right, I'll figure it out. So what I discover, I get this tape. It is excellent. It is beautifully shot. It's everything. What I discover is he hired a crew to come in and lighting, sound, everything. And I was like, Jesus, I hope he books this because it'll help absorb the cost of what he put into it. But he's a total professional. He wants it done right. But I learned from George Romero, in order to be a really good director, you need to know everyone's job on a set. So when they come to you asking you for more money and more time, you know whether it's real or they just don't know what they're doing. Monty's the same thing. He's gone off to be a really good uh, director and writer and producer, and he loves to know what's going on. And he loves knowledge and is constantly reading and working on his craft, and I, I love him. He's great. Yeah, yeah. True American hero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, which brings us to our last guest of this season. And again, what a lovely lady with fascinating stories, as she would say, totally. Um, but we really didn't explore that story, particularly on, on the show, I, I realised afterwards, um, as to why that she got a role because of the way she said the word totally. But PJ Souls, just such a delightful lady to have a chat with. And again, fascinating stories about the business of being an actor. Well, she's the real deal. Um, what you see is what you get. She, she's, there's something so genuine about her. Um, and what a fascinating career. I mean, uh, just life. Let's mm. not even talk about the career, but just her early life, uh, traveling the world. She was born in, in, in Frankfurt, Germany. She ended up traveling with her father, who, who was a businessman, to uh, Morocco and Spain and I think Argentina and all, all over the place. Uh, what I loved is what she really wanted to do was she wanted to be the first female ambassador to the Soviet Union, which I thought was an incredible thing. Like, why would anyone want to do that? Uh, especially at that time. Um, but then caught the acting bug and just that evolution. She auditioned, you know, she went in for an open call audition for Carrie and Star Wars was being cast at the same time. So while she's there, she ended up auditioning for Brian De Palma for Carrie and ended up auditioning for Star Wars for Princess Leia. I mean, it's it's that great Hollywood story, right? Um, uh, and, and just that evolution of this led to that and that led to this. Um, great stories, great career, any great horror enthusiast will always have Carrie in their library. They'll always have Halloween. Um, they'll have the Devil's Rejects. There's there's a handful of films that's there, and she's always there. Same thing with comedies. Take a look at her comedy career. She's she's phenomenal with comedy, just like Lynn Shay. I mean, Kingpin, and there's something about Mary and and the other uh, the other Coen Brothers films. Uh, she was in uh, Rock and Roll uh, uh, High. She was in um, uh, Stripes. She was in Private Benjamin and, and a slew of other great comedy films. So there's really nothing she can't do, although she, she gets put into that Scream Queen category. Um, she's really great at comedy. And, uh, you know, I wish that Hollywood was, um, it's better, but 
not quite where it should be. She should be in comedy still. She should be, she should be working all the time um, because she's so talented and there's so much more to her than just saying totally, you know, cause that's where people go. They think of her as the, the, the you know, the crazy bitch high school girl and Carrie. And they think of her uh, as, as the, as the young teenager in, in uh, uh, Halloween, but um, she's quite a talented lady. Yeah. yeah. Very, well, intelligent. Very intelligent. Yes. And also again, it was to me it was one of the fascinating insights that i gained was the fact so you know when i asked her the question okay because you know you're known for paying every parent's nightmare teenager what were you like as a teenager again being very honest and being very very open about what her personal circumstance was and why she was you know why she was different but how she made that leap as to what the quintessential USA teenager was in in her mind that obviously served her very very well. Um, just, again, loved the you know the story about working with Bill Murray on Stripes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the kitchen slides. She's she's just she's just uh, she's approachable. She's mm. incredibly kind, and she's so generous with her time. Mm. And uh, she's just uh, it. it if you're a fan of of hers, like you know, some people are intimidated. You know, they don't want to approach approach her. She's wonderful. She's she's just a delightful human being, and uh, um, yeah, uh, and a, and a great guest to end our second season. Yes, yes, yes. And as we say, end the second season. Can you give us any hints as to who may be coming up in season three? Well, we're still working on that. We're going on hiatus. Uh, but I think there's going to be some pretty big Rob Zombie alumni coming in. And I think there's going to be some Romero alumni coming in. And I think there's going to be, uh, I'm going to reach out to some casting directors. Uh, some, I, I, I think it would be fun to see that perspective. I think it, uh, and it, it just, Talking about Barbie made me think about it because um, I remember when George Romero was casting, um, uh, was getting ready to start directing Land of the Dead. And I remember the instructions he gave to Eugene Clark, who ended up being cast as Big Daddy, what his uh, audition notes were. It was, you're dead. <laughs> you're not speaking. Um how do you react when you see a phone, this, that, and the other? It, it was so interesting to see Eugene's take of that. And as a casting director, like that, you're going for those kinds of things, the movement of your head and, and just, you know, what you do. Uh, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore that. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely some fun people in the works. Um, I don't want to give too many hints because uh, we're still working out the details because some of them are working, but there's some really, really good people. As always, I want to thank you because um, you do this incredible job. And uh, for me as a producer, the greatest compliment is when the guests call me and go, oh my God, speaking to Nick was so incredible. He was delightful. And Monty called me a couple of days ago and he was like, Chris, Monty. I'm like, yes, I know that's you. And he goes, uh, I got to tell you, he goes, I, I thought my interview was going to be cut down. He goes, and you, you just let it be the way it was. He goes, it was wonderful to be able to talk to Nick so candidly. And, I, and it's the truth. Everybody feels so comfortable talking to you. Courtney Gaines has said it. Malcolm has said it. Malcolm actually just watched his interview. And he said, God, he goes, it was so good. Um, uh, uh, Breck, uh, Jonathan Breck. Um, Amanda Weiss, uh, several others, they've all said the same thing. Is Nick is such a good interviewer. So as always, kudos for you uh, to you for making everyone feel comfortable because if they don't feel comfortable, they're not gonna open up and we're not gonna hear those great stories. And it's, it's much appreciated for all your work. As always, my assistant, Jared, for all the hard work he does, Amanda, for all the hard work she does, and everyone else, Craig, uh, and, and, and all of the other people on the crew that, that make it come to life every every week. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, to kind of reiterate my thanks to you and the rest of the team because over the last 
Well, we start, I think I was looking at it the other day. It was June, July of last year. We started talking about this idea before we launched in October. And it's just kind of been the real privilege of being able to chat with such inspiring people through some very dark times, but also just gaining insight as to what the business is. And I really hope you know, that there are actors and filmmakers who are watching this, because I think what our guests bring is the real honesty of what it takes to be a success in this business. Uh, and that it's a long-term process, right? Mm. Uh, you, you listen to someone like Tom Holland talk about this process that he went through all these decades. So from the time he uh, started acting in 1963 to, to uh, 1982, when he got uh, psycho, um, he went through a lot during that almost 20 year period, you know, actor struggle, director struggle, writer struggle. Mm-hmm. People don't always realize it. Um, you know, you often think, God, what would have happened to Stephen King had his wife Tabitha not pulled the manuscript for Carrie out of the trash because he didn't like it. She sent it in to get published. He wasn't aware of it. It gets published a couple years later. It gets made into a movie. I mean, you know, this is the business and we, do, we don't know um, the road that it's going to take us on to get to the place we want to be. Yeah. And um, sometimes you go in circles like the roads in England and you just keep going <laughs> and, and, and you finally go, where, where am I going? Uh, and then you go, oh, there's the M5 or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that's the beauty of every one of these stories is you really do kind of get to know where they came from and how they started and how they struggled, uh, you know. The, you know, the, the carnival for Barbara Crampton and, and, mm. and just little things like that. I think it's incredible. Um, and you make it come to life. So, you know, big thank you to our entire team and where I love to see where we're ranking around the world uh, on, on the different charts. And, you know, when I see that we're like number one in Slovakia, <laughs> these countries around the world, and you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is great. Looking forward to season three, looking forward to the break so I can get everything kind of polished and ready for you. And um, so, you know, to everyone out there, tune in. A lot of great guests yes. and uh, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you to everybody who does watch and listen and who's reached out to us. Um, you know, to say hello and ask questions and so on. Um, it reminds me, I, I need to reply to somebody. Thank you very much. We will return on June the 3rd. In the meantime, my thanks to Chris Rowe and stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.